Yes, two readings this morning. The first one, Acts chapter 10, and it's the entire chapter, so starting at verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped by, at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into his house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up! He said, 
I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Some days ago, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the house of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. (coughs) He He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptised with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. And our second reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked 
And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. A question for you as we begin opening up Acts 10. Um, who does Jesus have time for? Jesus has time for... Sorry, what was that? Everyone, thank you. Good answer. It's true. Um, I want to tell you and illustrate that, though, with a story of, the, um, of a man called James. Because there's always something to be said for the company you keep. James isn't his real name, um, but... I'll call him James. When I met him, he stumbled through the church door and he took eight sugars in his cup of coffee. He certainly wasn't a typical churchgoer. When he walked in that faithful day, he didn't leave. And I mean that literally. He didn't actually leave for eight months. He slept on the couch in the car park under the deck um, on wherever he could. He had no fixed address. He spent most of the day talking to himself And I would spend hours with him each week. He'd come out with me when I went about my day and we'd chat about life and how messy and hurtful his past was. And he would often just burst into tears talking about it. And I'd hug him and he would give me a big toothless black grin afterwards. If we ever went for lunch, he would eat so much that he would sleep the next day just digesting it all. If people came to the church and didn't know, and he didn't know why they were there or what for, he would yell at them and abuse them until someone corrected him. Every few weeks, he'd walk into my office and he'd sit on the couch and he'd ask about my family, my kids, my wife, and then he would pray for them. We spoke about Jesus and hope and salvation, and he began to know God more and more. As we got to know each other, he would often say things like, I know Jesus is my Lord. Day and night, James was there ready and willing to serve God's people. He started calling me Thumper because I had a loud footstep up the stairs, and I call him Sunshine because he was so cheery all the time. People often had enough of him. They wanted him gone. He was hard work to be around with, I get it. They didn't like how he smelt, or his demeanor, or how he spoke. And last year, he was baptized, and everyone cheered. James is still, by most people's assessment, someone you'd never, ever expect to be curious about God, or want to spend time with. And in fact, he called me four weeks ago just to ask how I was. How are things, Luke? And he ended that conversation by saying, I'm glad God's looking after you. What sort of people would Jesus spend time with? And I think James is exactly the type of person that Jesus would have lots and lots of time for. I mean, think about it. Jesus spent time with uh, socially isolated men and children, bedridden women, people possessed by demons, a man who made a career out of exploiting people. They were just some of the folks Jesus hung around with. What sort of company do you keep? It's a good question because it brings us to Acts 10. 
and how Peter and Cornelius, two very different people, both came to understand, as we heard in the kids' talk with these puzzle pieces, by God's grace, there are no favorites in his kingdom. A bit like James and me. No favorites, just a big vision for all people to be gathered around King Jesus. And by God's grace, that can be our vision too as a church. Because it's when we know Jesus that the barriers truly come down as we worship and love and talk about God together. Because after all, cultural barriers today really aren't barriers at all if you know Jesus. They're just great new opportunities to bring Jesus to the least, the last, the lost, the middle class, the morally righteous, the hurting and the lonely. Because the gospel of Jesus makes us all see that we're in the same boat. And to all people, we declare there is one God and Savior, the man Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter actually explains in Acts chapter 10. So, let's take this in three parts today and then end with what that might look like for us today. And if, if you're here today and you don't yet know the God that we're talking about, that we've sung to, that we've heard in our all-ages talk, then would you come with me for a few moments and help me show you God's great vision for humanity? And that can be yours when we bring our lives under His loving rule and care too. So, chapter... 10 verses 1 to 23 is the first part, food for thought. There was a man named Cornelius, a centurion. He and his family were devout and God-fearing, and he gave generously and prayed regularly. Meet Cornelius. He's pious. He's important. He loves God. He loves God's people. We even learn later on that he invested in a synagogue. Luke is making it clear that this man is acting like a Jew, but he's not a Jew. In fact, Luke calls him something really strange. He says he's a God-fearer. What does that mean? Well, get our cultural compass out for a minute and think that back in, in the days of Peter when this was written, the majority of Jewish people thought Gentiles, that's anyone not a Jew, were barbarians and pigs. Tensions over the last 200 years had cut the social, uh, cultural divide deep. But Gentiles, on the other hand, they thought Jews were weird and fanatical. Some were attracted to Judaism, though, and if they were attracted to Judaism, they fell into two categories. You had proselytes, who were circumcised, baptized as a Jew, or you had God-fearers. Those who made a profession of faith in Yahweh God, followed some of the laws, prayed to God, maybe gave, but never converted. That's Cornelius. But the trouble is, if you're a God-fearer, it still means you're unclean to a Jew. And so Peter, for example, would never associate with a God-fearer. Why? Because it will bring a good, upstanding Jewish person, even Peter, into contact with someone who was unclean. The cultural narrative of their day that they were swimming in, both Peter and Cornelius, said you don't eat or visit the home of someone like that. And it went both ways. Don't think that Peter's the bad guy and Cornelius is the good guy in the story. It's not about good or bad. It's about exposing a culture that was there. But actually, for all the cultural tensions, God is just so happy to cut through the divide, isn't he? Because he just shows up and starts talking to a Gentile. I mean, look at verse 3 and 4. God shows up, 3 in the afternoon, the hour of Jewish prayer, and Cornelius is praying. And Cornelius distinctly saw an angel of God who came and said, Cornelius, he knows him by name. And Cornelius had a fright. (laughs) 
Angels are not winged creatures that play harps. They're terrifying warriors. And every time you see them in Scripture, the people that see them are fearful and afraid. You know, we're meeting someone right now who's so much like a Jew that God is actually treating his prayers and gifts as a Gentile equivalent with the sacrifice of a faithful Jewish man. And God sees that. And God wants to move Cornelius one step closer to him. And he shows up to give him the one piece of information that he needs. The one thing he's lacking is an apostolic witness. That's a fancy way of saying he needs to get Peter, who saw and lived with Jesus, to come. You need Peter. You need Peter because you need to hear, Cornelius, about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus from someone who saw, touched, ate with him. But you know, visions like this are actually super rare, even in the Bible. But what, what isn't rare is we see God working to bring about revelation of himself through the witness of, passed down through his apostles in the word of God to each generation after that. And we're looking at today. So, Cornelius faithfully sends for Peter 40 kilometers away. His attendants are going to arrive the next day. Scene one. Scene two, we have Peter in verse nine. Peter's hungry. He's tired. He's on the coast of the Mediterranean at a place called Joppa, and he's staying with Simon the tanner. And Simon's job is in the tanning industry, which means he works with animals and cuts their skin off and dries them and sells them. But doing that job would have made Simon the Jew, the tanner, very unclean by Jewish laws. Peter doesn't actually seem to be too bothered by that because he stays with him. He associates with him. You see, Peter at this moment is rather, unha- is rather happier to associate with an unclean Jew than a Gentile. But God has other plans for Peter. And so, in the same way, while praying, God shows up giving Peter some more food for thought. And Peter saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to the earth by its four corners, and it contained four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice said, get up, kill, and eat. This is God's tablecloth. Peter's hungry. Lots of animals. But Peter would never, ever have thought he should eat these. He's not a vegan. It's just the Old Testament law excluded them from his diet. If you ate them, you became unclean. You couldn't approach the temple. You couldn't go close to God, so he thought. Cornelius lived in that space all the time. Peter avoided that space with his whole life. Growing up, Peter's culture had told him again and again, we read about in some of the ancient writings, the dwelling place of Gentiles are unclean. What Peter needs to understand is that these laws have long gone past their use by date. Because in verse 15, God shows Peter what he's really up to. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. In reality, food is only the starting point of what God's doing here. What Peter's about to realize is that food is a picture of Jew-Gentile relationships. Just hang that up for a moment. Isn't God kind? I mean, food's a big deal for a Jew. But the inclusion of Gentiles is even bigger than that. And so God gives Peter just a bite-sized part of his plan. I mean, it takes time to see things God's way, doesn't it? You, You probably know that in your own life. Remember, the time period of Acts at this moment is around 15 or 20 years since Jesus ascended into heaven. 
this is a long, slow burn that God's working in his people here. And isn't he kind of working in his time in their lives? And this is why, sorry, this is how Peter starts to realize that God's doing more than just showing him a tablecloth to eat from. Because the providential timing of these events makes it very clear this vision is not actually about the tablecloth. Peter's confused. You know, what is God up to? And God tells him some men are here looking for him and that he, should, that he should go with them. God sent them. And at that moment, you still see the barriers. The men, you notice in verse 17, don't actually go into the house where Peter is. They stay outside. Yeah, verse 17. They speak at a distance. They know the Jewish law. They know that if they go in, they're going to make the Jewish people unclean. They're sensitive to that. They don't want to make them unclean. So God begins to break the barrier and says, Peter, why don't you just go out and invite them in? And Peter starts to get it at this moment. He invites them in. They stay for the night in a very bold social move. Maybe he's thinking of all the people Jesus associated with here. And the next day, things get even more interesting because they travel all the way to Cornelius' house and he goes into Cornelius' house and Cornelius is so overwhelmed that Peter the Apostle is here that he falls reverently at Peter's feet. But remember, it's not about the tablecloth. Peter gets it. The word reverently is the idea of falling and submitting in gratitude at someone's feet. The same word is used when Mary sees the risen Jesus. And Peter says, whoa, dude, calm down. I'm only a human. Stand up. No superior race. No superior class. I mean, Peter could have gone in and said, I'm the Jew. You must worship me because I know Jesus. But he says, get up off the ground And that's the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? It levels humanity flat, making sure we rightly worship God and not people. Rightly seeing people too. Because after Cornelius stands up, four words, while talking with him. I love that. Peter and Cornelius have general chit-chat. Small talk over coffee sort of thing. He listens, he talks in a friendly manner. That would never have happened before, this moment, between a Jew and a Gentile, between Peter and Cornelius. And Peter knows that he's walking a very fine cultural line here too, because in verse 28, he, he just says it as it is. You're well aware it's against our law for a Jew to associate with, a, or, with or visit a Gentile. This is like the, the law, the cultural law today that says, go to someone's house, you bring something. I mean, it's not in the Constitution. It's, there's no, nothing enshrined in Parliament that says you do it. You just, you just do it. It's one of the, the cultural laws, right? And this is that kind of law. It wasn't written down in Deuteronomy, don't go to a house of a Gentile. But... And the kicker comes in verse 28, because Peter says, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. The tablecloth made sense. But remember, Peter doesn't say anything like an animal because God said, I've declared it clean. He says anyone, doesn't he? Person. God is declaring the barrier broken just as the temple and the the curtain in the temple is torn when Jesus rose from the dead. So the little mini curtains that humans put up between one another are also torn down in the name of Jesus. 
And what Peter and Cornelius realize is that God has no favorites. Verse 34. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. That is, being Jewish does not make you closer to God than a Gentile. And unity between people groups, it comes through not falling at the feet of others, but through the peace of God, which comes through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. God accepts from every nation those who fear him and does what is right. Historically, every tribe, the tribe you belong to, was always thought of as superior to others. Your race, the best. Your culture, the one that other people need so they can be a flourishing human. And you see bits and pieces of this thinking today. But Christianity has always seen people different, as equals, made in God's image. There's a value in humanity, regardless of who they are, their worth as image bearers is because they're made in God's image. That is a Christian way of thinking. And our secular world has taken the language of God and agrees with it in what they say. But the goal, you see, of seeing people this way is more than just unity and acceptance at a human level. We see people that way because the truth of verse 35, that God accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. God welcomes all people on the same basis of faith through Jesus Christ, through his atoning work, not our goodness. And any attempt at this moment in time, particularly to anchor Christianity into a citizenship or a class or a gender or a denomination or a race would be woefully false and inadequate, wouldn't it? Which means, practically, there's a sense in which we welcome and we proclaim. We don't put obstacles in the way because there's enough already in this world. Jesus offers grace to everyone freely and that's what we should be doing too. As individuals, in our families, when sinned against, even in our church. Which means we welcome and we proclaim and that makes a Christian a walking curiosity, profoundly accepting, unwavering in our views of humanity and the need for Jesus. Which is actually what Peter now does in this impromptu sermon. In it, he reminds Cornelius what he knows. Peter fills in the blanks for what he doesn't yet know, and then he reminds Cornelius of what God is up to in all this. He says, you know Jesus came anointed by God doing good and healing. You know that Jesus is the one to restore humanity as the prophets anticipated. You know that. And then he says, here's my part of this. Here's what Peter's up to. We are. We are witnesses to everything this Jesus did, his death, his resurrection. We even ain't with him. You can trust the witness of Peter. He's not making it up. This Jesus is real. And in verse 42, he says, He commanded, that is, God commanded us to preach about Jesus to all because Gentiles are guilty before God and need repentance too. In fact, the entire world is under God's condemnation and in Jesus, the way of repentance and forgiveness is there for all, Jew and Gentile alike. And all who believe in his name will receive forgiveness of sins. And if you want, Cornelius... Golden Grove, that can be your story too, verse 43. Because what Cornelius needs to know is knowledge of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And at that moment, God saw their belief. That Cornelius and his family were ready to accept what Peter says. And then this is a great way to interrupt the sermon. While still speaking, it says, the Spirit comes to them. Just at the right time. 
You know, in Acts 2, we saw the Spirit come before the sermon. Then Peter stood up. In Acts 8, with Philip, the Spirit came after the sermon. But here it was during, right in the middle. God knows what he's doing. He knows when belief is awoken and he sends the Spirit at the right time. This is the Gentile Pentecost, you could say. They praise God. They speak in tongues. Can you see it? Same God, same Spirit, same belief, same signs, same Jesus who saves. Which means if God's okay with them because he forgives and accepts them by faith, then Peter, you should be okay with it too. And he is. Verse 47, surely, he says, no one can stand in the way of their being baptized. They've received the Spirit just as we have. Full inclusion as God's people. Walls broken down by Jesus. They're now one in Christ. Unless you just think Peter's just being polite here, the final verse says Peter stayed with them for a few days longer which means he really does get it. However, as Acts 11, if you read ahead, will show us, other people still have a way to go. When Peter gets back to Jerusalem, there's a whole big kerfuffle because he has to give an account for his actions. You ate with a Gentile. My goodness. And, like a good leader, Peter brings others along to the place where God wants them to be, And by God's grace, through Acts 10, through Peter's testimony in in Acts 11, the Jewish people are now happy and satisfied that God includes the Gentiles by faith through Jesus. By God's grace, through this story we've seen, this could be our story too. For God to take us where he wants us to be as his people. And that is simply to have the big vision for the nations too. The era of exclusion of Israel being one nation is over. The use-by date's up. Because in Jesus, the promise to Abraham is now here. And it took some time, it took some God prodding for his people, but they're starting to get it. Because if the Spirit includes them, then the church should as well. So here's the thing, it does not matter your background or where you come from. When you believe in Jesus, you are included and part of his church which means God's church is always full of unlikely friendships, like I found with James, or Peter and Cornelius. And after all, it's when we start to see our common bond in Jesus that the joy and beauty of Revelation 7, 9, and 10 come sharply into focus of where it's heading. You notice the words there, great multitude, that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Imagine singing, worthy is God, but with every single language ever existing on the planet, all at one time. The cacophony of sound would be wonderful. And what are they saying around the throne? Great to see you. I'm glad you're here. No, they're saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb who is Jesus. Because you see, God's intent was never just me and a few thousand middle-class white people from Australia around the throne of Jesus. I mean, praise God that there'll be a few middle-class white Australians there, but really, every tribe and nation of people group from every time period, all for the praise and glory of God's grace. Wow! What a future! What a great future! Is that your future? around the throne, safe in the arms of Jesus. 
And so today, as we hear Acts 10 and we consider where it's heading, would we ask ourselves and reflect on with me that we would be a church who includes the other nations and those different from us? And yes, right now, that might not be a thousand nations in this room, but I'm sure at work and school you interact with them all the time. To ask ourselves the question, how are you going at welcoming others? What sort of company do you keep? Because if they're okay with Jesus, we should be okay with them too. And wouldn't it be great to be part of a church full of unlikely friendships so that each week when people come in, when you come in, you can see how Jesus truly, for real life, really does break down barriers in his name. That we would be a church who is loving God and loving people. And that would make disciples as we declare his glory and say salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb.